Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. I admit it, I am biased towards warriors in the field of education. A warrior is one who sees the whole child, knows what must be done despite an antagonistic culture, summons the necessary discipline to bring their insights forward without whining, and offers unimpeachable opportunities to deepen understanding and relationships with children. I am especially biased towards women education warriors, for despite the fact that many more women than men teach, the decision makers in policy, power, and structure are mostly men, especially when politicians control the budgets. And I am especially biased towards women education warriors who have led the way for 40 or so years, gained an international reputation, maintained a vibrant, healthy family life, and speak their truth. Perhaps we should rename this podcast Meetings with Remarkable Education Warriors. Today's guest, Nell Noddings, is all of the above and more. Her work in ethics of care encompasses every aspect of society, from education to politics to family to war. Nell's many attributes weave together to lead to a compelling knowledge of the primacy of care and relationship. She's not offering a theory. She's articulating an epistemology, a way of knowing. And yet, she is humble enough to remind the many teachers with whom she's spoken to just implement any small part of what you learn. Josette sometimes jokes that I should join a support group for the scheduling challenged. As with all of our guests, I scheduled a preliminary phone call with Nell to get acquainted and to organize logistics. Yes, you guessed right. I missed the time for the call. And I thought, oh rats. Actually, I didn't say rats, but I don't really want to say what I did say. She is so busy and we don't know one another. And did I blow it because I really want to do this? And then she emailed to ask what had happened. And I explained, and she was so easy with it. And then I realized that she ticks all the boxes of a woman education warrior with 40 years in the field. And, well, you get the idea. So here's a slice of her many accomplishments. And then we turn to Nell, which will be better for all of us. Nell Noddings worked in many areas of the education system. She spent 17 years as an elementary and high school mathematics teacher and school administrator before earning her PhD and beginning work as an academic in the fields of philosophy of education, theory of education and ethics, specifically moral education and ethics of care. She was the Jacks Professor of Child Education at Stanford University from 1992 until 1998 and was the Associate Dean or Acting Dean of the School of Education for four years. After leaving Stanford University, she held positions at Columbia University and Colgate University. 
She is past president of the Philosophy of Education Society and the John Dewey Society. In 2002, she held the John W. Porter Chair in Urban Education at Eastern Michigan University. She has been Lee L. Jacks Professor of Education Emerita at Stanford University since she retired in 1998. Thank you so, so much for joining us on this podcast. And I just want to start off by saying how deeply I personally appreciate the work you've done because in my, in my career, I, I've really centered on relationship-based education and done mm-hmm. all I can to bring that forward in the communities and constituencies that I work with. So thank you very much for that. You opened a door for me. And it's <clears throat> just so appreciated. So I thought we might jump right in and talk just about your current work, um, which, as I understand it, you're doing a lot of work now on how to combat polarization. Yes, that's that's right. Uh, the uh, difficulty there seems to be that we're developing an almost an almost uh, tribal sort of arrangement. Um, in our country, more and more uh, uh, differences that we're not really trying to uh, cope with. Um, we have never been uh, in favor of classes in this country, and of course, we favor. <clears throat> we spend quite a lot of time on that in our social studies classes that we that it is a classless society and we are uh, uh considering uh all people as equal and uh uh and so forth but it would seem that over the last uh 30 years or so people are beginning to uh, withdraw somewhat from that and to uh pay attention only to uh, the people they're already affiliated with. Uh, and that's not too surprising when you think about the en- enormous increase in uh, both sources and types of communication. It just couldn't possibly keep up with it. I mean, uh, Man and Ornstein, uh, in their book, I think the title of the book is It's Even Worse Than It Looks, uh, List the thousands of possible um, communications, uh, and so it's given that enormous proliferation. It isn't surprising that people have kind of withdrawn to communicate only with those uh, they agree with, uh, and that, of course, is leading to uh, almost a, a tribalism in uh, our country. So, um, but how, so how do we combat it? What steps do we need to take to combat that? Well, I think one of the most important things we have to do is uh, to uh, emphasize the uh, importance of relation in uh, human life um, and the corresponding importance of uh, communication and connection. Um, so in the uh, 
the work that I'm doing now, the uh, emphasis is on trying to increase connection. In fact, the title of the book I'm working on uh, is Toward a Morally Connected World. Uh, and in order to achieve that kind of connection, we have to be able to uh, talk to one another uh, across uh, distances and uh, well, opinions. And we're just not doing enough of that. I, I'm going to give you a, an illustration here. We're often called on to um, stand up for what is right. Uh, I'll take a, a simple but very prominent example today. I, a right and proper, decent American should be strongly opposed to racism. And I agree. We should be. Definitely. But how do we best oppose that racism? Is it by fighting people we label racist or by trying to understand and re-educate them? So that's a very big very big difference. Well, yeah, sure, certainly it is. Um, I guess uh, speaking from my own uh, my own biases in a certain way, I would believe that this would have to begin in the uh, early processes of education. Would you agree with that? Sure. So, yes, I do agree with that. So then, are there specific comments concerning yeah. how we can bring this forth in our educational environments? Yeah. Well, let me just add one little thing to that. I, I do think. Uh, it has to start uh, with early education and continue. But I don't see a place where we should give up. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, I, I agree uh, with that, too. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to uh, uh, hang in there. Now, even that has has a uh, uh, caveat. I was uh, rereading the exchange uh, between Martin Buber and uh, Gandhi. Uh, the other day in relation to the work that I'm doing and where Gandhi would maintain a peaceful relationship even uh, with the Nazis, uh, Buber had to say no on that because when you get to the point where the other side wants to kill you, if that's their main purpose, then conversation is of no use, you know? So, uh, however hard we try to establish a best way of going at things, we have to remember that there are uh, exceptions. We have to listen to the other side. And, of course, that's the thing I'm emphasizing in the work that I'm doing now, the importance of uh, listening, engaging in dialogue, persisting in conversation in order to uh, understand the other Mm -hmm. But it, it, doesn't that ability to do that, to stay and listen, I mean, I, I'm a little uncomfortable. I understand what you're saying about the many communication modes and devices and opportunities, but I'm a little uncomfortable putting it all there as to the reason why it's not happening. It seems to me like in the education system itself, and I'm not trying to in any way bash it, but trying to look at how it can allow for that capacity to deeply listen to develop oh i think we're making a mess of it uh, if you <laughs> if you say you think there's a problem with what we're doing in education take the very first thing in the name of equality 
we now want to prepare all kids for college, right? Right. Regardless of their interests, regardless of their talents, regardless of their longings and aptitudes and and all the rest of it. No, now, because we're all going to be equal, you'll all go to college. And then we turn around and say, well, yes, you're all going to college, but now we're going to rank you by advanced and standard and remedial and almost hopeless, but we'll still get you there, you know. Uh, and And so what do we... Doing. We're introducing the very sort of ranking that produces dramatic inequality in the name of equality. So then, so then, yeah. out with standardized testing, and how 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 deep a reform do we need in the traditional educational approach? And uh, do we then throw our weight more towards the? Uh, learner-centered approaches and the self-directed education and the homeschooling and the holistic schools? Well, you know, I wouldn't... I, uh, many of those approaches are worth looking at, but a couple of fundamental things that we just aren't talking enough about. First of all, where do we pay attention to the actual interests and talents of kids? What about the kids who are uh, mechanically talented, and there are quite a few kids who are mechanically talented. Um, and I'm no. jealous of them, I can assure you. <laughs> yes, sure. Yes, uh, uh, I too. I mean, since uh, uh, my husband uh, died you know, just a couple of years ago, and he was so wonderful at all mechanics. He was an engineer. Uh, but now, I, you know, I've got to yell for help when things go wrong <laughs> in, in the house. Um, but you see what, what we've done there. Uh, instead of uh, reviving and improving vocational education, instead of making it entirely respectable, uh, no, we're going to send everybody to uh, standard sort of college. Uh, and uh, in part, that's because that's far less expensive than the very best vocational education, uh, which happens to be expensive. But nonetheless, if we we're serious about uh, respecting all talents and interests, then we should do it. We should revive vocational education and put it on an, an equal level with the usual college sort of thing. Uh, so kids need something beyond high school granted. Well, why not two years of the finest vocational education? Now, that's just an example that I'm using here, but uh, I, th I think it's an important example. Mm -hmm, for sure. But it, way back in 2002, um, you wrote that uh, – that uh, educators who espouse an ethic of care are in a tough spot. That is, we're committed to responsiveness, and yet the uh, traditional educational climate doesn't really promote the opportunities for that type of responsiveness. No, I know, I know. Uh, here's where we have to begin thinking about some examples and possibilities. I mean, one that comes to mind for me, almost immediately, because of the way I started out in education, is that we might consider keeping kids and teachers together for more than one year. Uh, now, by mutual consent, 
See, there are people who right away want to make that a rule and force everybody into it. I don't want to force people into it. But if both teacher and kids are willing, you'd have a much, much richer education if they stayed together for, say, three years. And in part, that comes out of my very first uh, teaching experience. Um, I was trained as a high school math teacher, but... uh, uh, when I graduated, I graduated on the 17th of August and got married on the 20th. <laughs> had, to, had to move and uh, uh, look for a job where I could. Uh, my first job was not a high school math job. It was a, a sixth grade class. Uh, and at the, it was God, what a wonderful year that was. Those kids were, I can still name them all. At the uh, end of the year, uh, we were asked if we'd stay together for another year, uh, not for a wonderful educational purpose, but because the junior high was overcrowded. Uh, so the kids had to agree, and I had to agree. Uh, and so most of them did, and we stayed together through seventh grade. And at the end of that year, the junior high was still overcrowded, so we were asked uh, uh, whether we'd stay together for another year, <clears throat> and we did. Now, a, a funny side story to that is that on the first decision, uh, three of the girls uh, decided no, they, they wanted to go to the junior high, and the main reason was because they were sick of the boys they already knew, <laughs> and they wanted to meet new new boys. <laughs> At the end of the year, when they were, everybody was asked again, two of the girls came back because they'd had enough of the boys at junior high. It was the funniest thing. Uh, but anyway, those those three years uh, certainly had an enormous effect on my uh, educational uh, philosophy and my sense of... Uh, what we're doing right and what we're doing uh, wrong in our schools. There are things you can say, things you can do, ways you can behave with kids you really know well that you can't, you just can't in the beginning. Uh, it's uh, just not possible. So we are, we're not, in our educational thinking, we're not paying enough attention to the very important factor of relation relationships. And of course, that's what care ethics is all about. Mm-hmm. Well, with the it seems I, I when I taught graduate school here in Portland, and uh, I worked with uh, I, I actually taught a course about burnout, and most of the uh, educators there ascribed burnout to the lack of the feedback and relationship with the kids, yeah. with the students. So, exactly. but I don't see how to bring it in with the large class size and and all the prescribed. Uh, requirements and standards that come uh, with that schooling environment. Well, yeah, and, and we certainly are going to solve that entire problem in a, a short conversation that requires a good deal of uh, discussion. But I've given one example, and that ex- example is of continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it saves so much uh what would you call it? Uh, everyday oh, I, time. I, 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 so I, much time in staying together, yeah. Yeah, I understand it better now. I get what you're saying. That's kind of a Waldorf thing. They ha- they try to keep uh, sure. teachers. Yeah. And, um, yeah, great. Sure. Well, if you look at uh, the work of people like 
A.S. Neal and so many of the uh, sort of uh, education freedom writers, the uh, matter of relation is central. You develop a relation. Uh, I sometimes quote Simone Weil there when she says the fundamental question to ask of the other is, what are you going through? Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful question. What are you going through? Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're always going to be able to answer the problem or you know, solve it, but at least it's a, a place to begin, and the other has an opportunity to, to speak, to express interests and worries and problems. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them, and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This story is called Love. A saint entered a profound mystical state and was placed in an asylum as a madman. As soon as they heard, his shocked disciples came to visit him. The saint said, Who are you? And the disciples answered, We are some of those who love and follow you. The saint began throwing stones at his students. They began to run away, crying, It's true! It's true! He really has gone crazy! Then the saint called out to them, Didn't I hear you say that you loved me? You could not even bear a stone or two before running away. What became of that sincere love you claimed you had for me? Did your love fly away with a couple of stones? Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I'm trying to understand how what knowledge really is. Now, obviously, not just information gathering or data retention and regurgitation or anything like that, but does the quality and the opportunity in relationship actually lead to just more expansive knowledge, just knowledge as knowledge, knowledge as life, as self, as, as subject matter? Well, I think hmm, the best way to begin a discussion on that is, is to say, not the, not the knowledge itself, um, but how it makes us feel, or how we feel about it. Uh, and it's uh, one reason that, as a philosopher, I lean so much toward David Hume, who insisted that. Uh, sentiment or feeling is is just embedded in the whole notion of knowledge, 
Why do we want to know this? Why do we feel the way we feel about it? What are we going to do with it? All of these questions are questions too often we put to the side and just insist that here you have to learn this stuff and and pass a test on it, right? Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, so then, so then everything that we so we should be turning our attention. I know the should word is not the greatest here, but we should be turning our attention to how to develop relationships. And you often talk about Martin Buber and the uh, how I would phrase it is the end of objectification. Is there some way that we can? Um, bring that more into whatever educational environment we're in? Well, I, I, I think so. And we, we would do it by uh, showing how it can be done in the classes that we teach. It isn't just a matter of, uh, now, here are the things you have to know for the test, but you want to know how, how the students feel about this. How would you use it? How would you build on it? How do you see it fitting in with your uh, lifestyle, with your hopes for the future, and so forth? We don't ask those questions often enough. We don't, we don't find out uh, how our students' feelings or sentiments are connected to the, the so-called knowledge that we're trying to stuff into them. Um, and and how does how do you see the family uh, uh, being part of all this? I'm sure in a very fundamental way, but if you could be specific, and I know uh, from uh, my readings that you have a, a large family, right? And, and that um, a, so you must be have seen much in those relationships that gave you lots of insight into this as well. Well, sure. And one of the questions you asked was the. Uh, uh, connection to the ethics of care with the uh, uh, rest of my life. And, of course, it was uh, a bringing together, for me, uh, uh, raising this uh, large family uh, and thinking about uh, what goes into uh, care and what is required and so forth. Yeah, uh, Jim and I had... Uh, uh, five of our own biological children, <clears throat> and then we adopted three Korean American war orphans. Uh, and then, sometime a little uh, later than that, two more kids came along and just joined up with the family. Uh, so, yeah, wow. large family. <laughs> large family, and the amazing amount of work you've done in this field. Uh, however, did you find time for all of it? Well, it was stuff I loved doing. Uh, I always, I always uh, loved. Well, so you've kind of answered the question yourself, Bob, by noticing how closely these things go together: uh, the uh, style of life and the uh, philosophical reasoning that takes a look at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So then, what would you say? Uh, there, uh, in my in my experience, there's so many. Uh, both parents uh, and uh, educators, who I would typify as on the fence. That is, they want to enter more into a, a world of care. They want to, uh, they see the value of it. But 
you know, there's so many roadblocks uh, in social life, demands for money, you know, the uh, educational environments, um, mm-hmm. conditioning that's been handed down for generations that didn't really value care in the way we're speaking of it. What would you say to them? Well, I, I would, I, I guess, suggest to them that uh, they capitalize on their sense of relation and wanting to do the best for their kids. Uh, remember to ask what the kid wants, you know? I mean, it isn't a matter of saying, you know, we'll do everything we can to get you into college and you know, we'll pay and all the rest of it. But the question is, uh, to the the child, what, what do you see yourself doing eventually? What would you like to do? Uh, and let's talk about what it would require uh, to get you there. And I don't think enough parents are having that kind of conversation. There are conversations settled on how can we help you to do better in school? What college will you choose? How will you convince them to admit you? And uh, so forth. And there isn't enough conversation about what is it you really want to do? What do you think you're good at? And how can we help you to be better at it? Okay. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, if they would take that, I would hope, I would hope so. Those are very powerful words and it puts us directly in relationship and it breaks down some of the, um, some of the top down or, uh, you know, control, uh, in the relationships that makes it more, uh, co-created and, and emergent. So in your, your, your long career and is, um, what have you seen? Has the ethics of care and the education of care, has it, is it making its way into our world, into our society? Yeah, they brought, well, it, it just, you know, uh, brought my life together, uh, made a sort of oneness out of it all. Uh, what I was doing as a person, what I was doing as a teacher, what I was doing as a writer, uh, it's been, uh, it really has been quite a, a wonderful experience. And people ask me how I produce a lot of stuff. There are days when I wonder myself, but uh, <laughs> it's been worth it. It's been, it's been a terrific experience. Mm-hmm. And how about and a, still is? Mm-hmm? And still is. And may I and mention? May I mention that you are what eighty-eight or eighty-nine years old? Is that correct? You already have mentioned it. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes. I, uh, yes. yes. No, that's right. Of course you can. 80, yeah, I am 89. Uh-huh. That, and <laughs> just that is incredibly inspirational. Yes. So, um, the, uh, but what about in society? What have you seen uh, in society? Has uh, has the education? Has there been a movement? I don't. Know, movement's a terrible word. How has this work that you've spearheaded and that others have joined you in? How has that reached into society? What do the inroads look like? Yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that really. I mean, there are a lot of people who are thinking along the same line. Uh, that I am, and uh, uh, lots of conversations 
uh, going along these lines, but I don't uh, I don't see much actual effect in everyday uh, educational practice. Our uh, emphasis is still on uh, getting the top grades, getting into the best college, trying to reduce the uh, uh, the uh, polarization there. Uh, but we're just going at it in the wrong way. <laughs> I mean, by pretending that uh, uh, everyone is equal and then proving in everything we do that we're not all equal, not in all things. We're different, and that's one of the things that we should cherish. Uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about the direction that uh, public education is going in at the moment. And and do you track the more um, uh, alternative approaches to education? Um, the, as I mentioned earlier, the holistic schools or the there's the student directed education and that sort of thing. The the uh, the, the Waldorf's, the that, Montessori's, right. Right, right. I, we don't have to copy them exactly, you know, but we can learn a lot from them. And that's another thing I'm emphasizing in both my uh, writing and my lectures. You don't have to buy a program, hook, line, and sinker, try it for, say, three years, and it's not perfect, so then you throw the whole thing out again. I mean, we're doing that in so many things. Uh, and everything from math education to every other thing that we do in the schools is, you know, buy the thing hook, line, and sinker. Usually the only people who uh, profit from that are the publishers. And then uh, when it's not perfect, you uh, throw it out. Instead of that, and I'm talking to teachers about this a lot, and instead, what's good about this? What is it that we want to keep? Uh, and promote? What is it that we want to uh, put aside or uh, make a little uh, quieter? That's the way to improvement. It's the kind of, you know, <laughs> more incrementally. Working every day yes. method. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, sure, because there are things, uh, you know, if you've read uh, Robert Maynard Hutchins, for example, and his uh, notion of uh, uh, that uh, college education be, should be the same for everyone, everywhere. And on one level, you think, well, my goodness, that's, you know, he believes in equality. No, no. I don't believe in equality. There are only a few people who can do that. Uh, and why would you have education be everywhere the same for everyone, you know? Uh, and yet you can look at some of the things he recommended and say, but let's not throw these out. Let's keep this. Let's keep that. Let's get rid of this other stuff. Uh, and we're just not doing enough of that in our educational thinking. When you speak to these teachers, do, what, do they name some of the roadblocks that they face? What, are the, what would they say is, is in their way from uh, incorporating some, some of these things, even incrementally? Well, uh, I don't see an awful lot of optimism at, at the moment. 
and in part that is because uh, we have invested so heavily in the notion of, uh, well, let me give some examples. We talk about objectives instead of aims, right? The objectives are specific. Aims open up the whole world to exploration. When we say our aim is uh, to produce better people, mm-hmm. gee, okay, what are you going to do now? List the five things that describe better people? Uh, <laughs> I, I hope not, but see, that's what happens. That's yes. what happens. They then want, okay, list the five things that make better people instead of opening up this wonderful conversation on what we mean, what are the dimensions of uh, better persons and uh, so forth. So I would like to restore that uh, kind of uh, conversation and open up the possibilities for some... uh, uh, Varieties of approaches in our schools. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. I, I I understand and and I agree entirely. Um, I I looked at uh, some of the ideas in. Uh, 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 you wrote the forward to uh, Rianne Eisler's uh, Education of Tomorrow's Children, and in it you talked about that the topics and the conversations that she was suggesting to be brought up would be along the lines of allowing this greater relationship to develop. Sure. Uh, yes. Sure. <laughs> so psychologically, there, there seems to me like this weight of conditioning, this idea of loyalty, all the isms that uh, seem to uh, grip people that, uh, in my experience, inhibit them from entering into these kinds of conversations. Do you have uh, any insight to offer around that? Of how we can provide more opportunities for this sort of conversation. Well, or we can. Uh, I I honestly I, I'm, I honestly here I'm speaking something that I've groped with in my whole career because uh, especially working with families, you'll point out different ways, or they'll see different ways that they could relate to their children. But then a grandparent comes over, or there's some sense of loyalty to an institution. And then they'll turn that child over to that and ignore the uh, relationship opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, well, I I think what you're describing is another uh, example of the, the search for specificity and certainty. Uh, instead of keeping the conversation open and uh, the world open uh, to a, a genuine uh, host of possibilities. So in, in a family, you want to know what, what the kids are interested in and what might they do with these interests. 
doesn't mean you're going to capitalize on all of them. Some you might want to uh, discourage, but this um, uh, the current tendency is for a, a sort of uniformity that just is not in agreement with human nature. So, uh, uh, as an old math teacher, I know that there are there are lots of kids who just hate math. They hate it, and uh, as a math teacher, you can acknowledge that. I even found ways to uh, have them move at their own rate, so to speak. They had to cover a certain amount of material in order to get a, a passing grade, but they had to show that they had learned that material, and then they would move on. But they didn't have to do every problem in the book. Um, they didn't have to get high grades on tests. Uh, I mean, even showing that kind of sympathy, that there are people who whose interests just don't fall along these lines. And that's okay. That's okay. I'll help you to get through it. I'll help you to get through it, um, and we're just not—we're just not doing uh, enough of that. We're not opening up the uh, conversational world, which I think is a very bad mistake. You know, a lot of my uh, kind of writing, and <clears throat> now today too, I'm pointing out, talking about some uh, writers that I call heroes of civility. And these are people like John Stuart Mill and Isaiah Berlin and Martin Buber uh, and, and a number of others who always insisted that you don't even understand your own position until you understand that of others. And when you get into an argument, the first thing you have to do is to understand the point of view of the other before you start to argue. Uh, I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, we don't understand our own position if we don't understand that of the person with whom we're arguing. See, there's just, just not enough attention to that sort of thing now. Well, what you're saying now strikes me as quite powerful in the sense that these conversations and these opportunities actually can be embedded into any curriculum event. In other words, as long as there's the time or, as you said, the consistency to, ha to have that sort of fundamental trust or relationship with the uh, student, that then we can bring it into math or anywhere else. We don't have Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, okay. very good point. Uh, yeah, very good point. Uh, uh, and uh, another general one that goes right along with it is that we should give up the practice of uh, assigning something to exactly one place. Uh, I know you've seen this. I've seen it. <clears throat> something will come up in a uh, a school meeting. They'll say, well, you know, we really should be teaching X. And then people say, well, where will we teach that? And the answer to that, in many cases, is everywhere. You know, everywhere. Um, in math class, in English class, in history class, uh, everywhere. Uh, and we don't 
often enough do that. Uh, in the last couple of years, I've made some um, suggestions about ways we could treat topics in religion, for example. Uh, now, well, we don't have to worry about that in math class. People will say, well, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And there's a, a way to do it, and that is through biographies. You can talk about the uh, biography of uh, Bertrand Russell, for example. Uh, Bertrand Russell was an atheist. Does that mean you're teaching everyone to be an atheist? No. But he was an atheist, and yet, look, in his late years, into his 80s, he was marching the streets to condemn war. And there are so many things that you can say about the lives of mathematicians that will have some influence on the other parts of life, and we just aren't doing enough of that. I have found in my, uh, I've, I've uh, with my wife, Josette, brought forth a different way to look at uh, child development um, that's, to use a phrase, more holistic. And I, we have found that particularly children between 8 and 12, almost everything can be taught from the personal uh, stories and biographies of the people involved in that subject area and that there's this personal connection that happens very quickly where they can relate to that and then they become interested in whatever uh, knowledge that that particular person oh, brought forth. Absolutely. I mean, one of the uh, longest and I hope best chapters in the book that I'm working on now will be on the uses of biography. Uh, yes. Because it is a way to relate all of the you know, huge aims and longings of life to the specific subject that you're teaching. Uh, and it can be uh, not just interesting, but actually thrilling. Uh, and we neglect that, I'm afraid. I mean, I and uh, having uh, I haven't done any recent work directly with math teachers, but when I was doing that sort of thing, um, and most of them didn't know any mathematicians except Pythagoras and Euclid. Yes, <laughs> that's pretty bad, you know. It, it is amazingly bad because we ha we don't have the connection. It doesn't have meaning for us. It's just another bit of data floating out there that we can't right. find back into our own That's sense right. of self. And learning anyway. something about the lives of these people is so inspiring. So, yeah, it is so inspirational. And not only that, but it's interesting. It can be funny. Uh, it makes all sorts of connections with the other subjects. Yeah, I don't know why we don't do more of it. And also, the understand the foibles, the challenges, the many quote failures before success, and all that sort of thing. It just enlivens the entire. It just makes it textured and and present and and real for the students. I've had so mm -hmm. much luck with that. We also used to play this um, game at the start of uh, many classes where we called it interview, and just one of the students would be in the middle and the other kids would interview for just 10 minutes about that child's life. And it just takes 10 minutes. And then you just don't see clicks form. You just you don't see so many of the separation and uh, you know pushing away because the kids become real to each other. They see yep. each other. Yep, yep. 
Yep, the child question becomes a whole new person. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, mm-hmm. beautiful. Well, believe it or not, we've been talking for 45 minutes here. And, um, That's what my clock says too. Yeah. All right. So I'm just wondering, do you? What did I forget to ask or talk about something that you really wanted us to bring up today? No, I think I think we covered uh, a lot <laughs> in the uh, in the, the time that we had. But I, you know, I would just like to uh, see education. Uh, open itself up to appreciate the full range of human talents and not to be so doggone hypocritical as to suppose we're going to get rid of inequality by making everybody the same. Uh, Because that in itself uh, destroys the, the special nature of each and every human being. Yeah. Yes. One thing that we didn't get into, but I think we can infer from all you've said, is also relationship to environment, relationship to all living things, and and that the same kind of uh, opportunity, in a sense, is there in, in the way that we allow ourselves to see ourselves as not separate, but participating in this incredible unfolding of life and, yeah. and all, that, all, that is, all that's involved in that. Yeah, yeah. Great. Agreed. I know. Wonderful. Well, uh, we could go on talking. We could. For hours, but it's not practical, right? It isn't. So thank you so very, very much. And um, I'll be including all sorts of things in our introduction and conclusion uh, just to round out some of the things we spoke about today. Okay. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. All right. So thank you so much. And just many blessings meetings with remarkable educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on patreon if you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators please visit patreon.com slash remarkable educators and consider becoming a patron Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Bob Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.